following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians or People Too. There is a David Silby. Morning, gentlemen. How are we doing? Doing well. Yeah, flesh. Excellent. Good to see you. Love the love the guitars. Oh, thanks, man. They're there for show. <laughs> they, they're they're self self esteem support tools. He, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. He doesn't actually play the guitar at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to see you, man. How you doing? Good. Good. Yeah. I'm, uh, semester's uh, going well. Um, uh, students are starting to get a little uh, crazy um, as the weather gets cold, but that's uh, that's pretty normal. Um, how about you? Uh, our semester is going well, but students are getting a little crazy just because we're, you know, eight weeks in now. And yeah. They're suddenly waking up and like, what? I had a test today. Uh, you know, stuff like that. So it's yep. all the all the work I didn't do for the first eight weeks is now yes. come to uh, roost. You know, it is. I was just complaining to, to Brian that, that you know, it, it, it's just one, one student, one or two students, right? Everybody else does what they're supposed to do and they take no time. But one or two can suck up half your day. Yeah. Yeah. Emails and yeah. whatever. I spent yeah. an hour and a half yesterday on, a, on an email to a student. Oh. You know, and it's something from the previous semester. Oh, God. And it's just like, ah, right? They're vampires. Yeah. They're vampires. Yeah. What's the line? Uh, 90% of the students take 90% of the time and the last 10% take the other 90% of the time? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Oh, right. right. Yeah. And you can even you can identify them at the beginning. I mean, this yeah. sounds sort of bad. I don't mean to criticize student tell whoop um sort of tell that um who's gonna be a problem at the beginning of the of the semester. Um yeah. did my audio shift? No, okay. No, no, no you're, you're fine. Good. Audio's you're fine. fine. No, I know what you mean, David. I I I look out there amongst the 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 mass, you know, in front of me and I and I look for myself. And if, if I find myself out there, okay, you're going to be a problem. Yeah, you're going to be, um, you're, you're going to be, be trouble. You're going to be trouble. You're going to be trouble. Uh, All right, man. I'm going to do right. our, our shout outs real quick. Yeah, go for it. All right. As always, to our friends at the out at the ranch in Lawrence at the University Press of Kansas, big hey to them uh, and all university presses. And since David's is here with us, it's, he does stuff. He's done stuff with Kansas, uh, but he has a series at, at Cornell University Press. So shout out. Uh, up there to the, the folks in, in Ithaca. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, KU football, they're like undefeated. Yeah. Right? Crazy. No, I, I don't I don't understand. I'm, uh, I don't know, but Joyce has a great backdrop it, it, on Zoom. It's the stadium. Yeah. It oh, wow. Like, and she's got headphones on and she looks like she's like a, an announcer. Oh, like she's broadcasting. announcing the game, broadcasting the game. Yeah. And, and I and I'm a Duke PhD, and they just beat uh, Duke, uh, uh, the battle of two undefeated teams. So the the hope that Duke would have a good football team is once again rudely shattered um, yeah, well, by actually playing. Yeah. Right. There you get that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Modern Scholar and uh, Bowen Blade podcast. Check them out. Uh, always doing good stuff. And a, a special shout out to one of my students, uh, uh, Ray Lynn Phelps. Uh, she's the one that shared with us her family's uh barbecue little empire 
yeah uh, you know before and and she brought me some some issues of barbecue news nice uh, Brian, can you get a screenshot yeah let me get a screenshot of that screenshot <laughs> there we go um so I, brian i think i put one in your box okay thank you yeah thank you so she brought, she brought some issues of that so thanks for doing that some cool stuff in here man yeah um a lot of good swag potential too with these different places that advertise so uh so i i have, I have a feeling i can uh, you know spend some money here <laughs> um but yeah that's all i got all right well we will uh we'll roll right into uh into the intro david silby who is is not david sibley because david sibley is a renowned um illustrator of 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 all birds right you probably knew that um because when you google your name that other guy comes up <laughs> oh yeah listen i uh i have been confused so many times with uh with the bird watcher so absolutely people are writing you asking you if you can you know like sell prints of, of birds <laughs> i really right. should start selling them uh so yeah. uh, all right david silby is associate director of the cornell in washington program and senior lecturer at cornell university he joined Cornell after spending the first decade of his career at Alvernia University in Reading, Pennsylvania, where he reached the rank of associate professor. Oh, Brian, you're get, we're going to get all sorts of crap. You, what is it, Alvernia? No. Alvernia, Redding. 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 Oh, Shisa. Okay. Redding. 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 Sorry, yeah, Redding. Yeah, PA. man, don't, don't, you're going to open up Twitter waves, man. Okay, you leave know. it on there so I can, I can take the, you know. So you can take the hit? Yeah, take the hit. <laughs> Uh, David received his BA in history from Cornell University and his MA and PhD in history from Duke University. David's published numerous book chapters and articles, but it is his ability to produce books and edited volumes that is so enviable. His first book, The British Working Class and Enthusiasm for the War, 1914 through 1916, was published by Taylor and Francis in 2005. Hill and Wang published David's A War of Empire and Frontier, the Philippine-American War, 1899 through 1902 in 2007, and the Boxer Rebellion and the Great Game in China, 1900, um, back in uh, 2012. Both of those are fine reads. They are, and and, and David owes me a drink should we ever see each other at a conference because I assigned um, the Boxer Rebellion book to a class of 200 students. Wow, my daughter's college fund. Thanks you. Yeah, there you go. His latest major publication was the co-authored volume, The Other Face of Battle, America's Forgotten Wars and the Experience of Combat. And uh, he wrote that one with Wayne Lee, who's a friend of the podcast, uh, Anthony E. Carlson and David L. Preston. And uh, they put one that, that one out with Oxford University Press in 2021. In 2023, our friends at the University Press of Kansas will be publishing Wars, Civil, and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War I, and that's a volume that David edited uh, or co-edited with, and I'm going to let you say your co-editor's name. Canasorn Wong Street Channelai. Okay, I would have never gotten that right in a million years. So uh, <laughs> He goes by kid, which, uh, which makes things more straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> um, David is extremely visible in the military history community. He's appeared on the Science Channel, the BBC, the National Geographic Channel, the History Channel, and A&E. He is a trustee of the Society for Military History and the former chair of the Society's Education Committee. He was a National Security Fellow at the Jamestown Project at Harvard University from 2005 through 2007. And since 2018, David has served as the series editor for Cornell University Press's Battleground series, and that is uh, Cornell Studies in Military History. And we're going to talk about that some. Um, So welcome, David. It's great to have you on. 
Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm exhausted just listening to you uh, to you read that out, uh, um, but I appreciate it. Um, it's great to be here. It's good to see everybody. Um, I've enjoyed your previous podcast, so it's it's a wonderful opportunity to have a chance to chat. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, we appreciate it very much. So, um, David, you're, you're not going to remember this, but um, I think I met you at like the first conference I ever went to, which was the European section of the Southern Historical and you, I think, were finishing at Duke, and I was applying to PhD programs. I was like an undergrad who had gone, you know, with my advisor or something to this thing. And I remember you giving me advice. So, uh, you know, twenty some odd years later, thank you. Wow, that's that's a, that's a deep cut. Um, I remember going to the Southern Historical Association. I don't remember chatting with you I'm yeah sorry. well you know i was i was a you know undergrad at the time i think so uh or or maybe early early ma student but yeah uh, it's... i think somebody pawned pawned me off on you like they were like oh here talk to this guy um... <laughs> <laughs> well it's but it's but it's interesting because i i do think that um uh conferences are really good ways for prospective grad students to get a sense of the everyday rhythm of the profession but they can also be so completely overwhelming and intimidating. You know, you're yeah. walking in a room, a uh, conference full of people you don't know who are, you know, chattering away with each other and who are um, sort of talking about all sorts of different things. And I, I, I'm not sort of trying to brag, but I really have always tried to make a, a chance to chat with people and just say, hey, how you doing? How is it going? Because because otherwise it can feel so alienating to be yeah. to be at those conferences early. Hey, on. David, didn't you didn't you start up the SMHs that mentorship program? I did. I did. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. As part of the great. educational committee, yeah. one of the suggestions was exactly that: was that we start a mentor program for folks coming to the Society for Military History conference uh, for the first or early on. Um, and it was it was great, both because um, the established folks at the SMH were incredibly helpful. You know, the the waves of volunteers I got to yeah. set it up, and then to be able to sort of connect them with people. Um, and we it was very informal. We sort of handed out a coffee card, um, and they would people would sit in the, the hotel lobby and and drink coffee. But it was it was really good to see um the the sort of people sort of laughing and smiling as you walk through the hotel um and knowing that that you've made that that connection i i think that may have been the the best thing i've ever done frankly for the smh so no that was a super yeah, deal I, and i participated in that it was really yeah. really a lot of yep. fun so it was that was you know well well done well done Thank you. All right. So, David, um, you know, give us the rundown. Tell us where you're from. Um, what did your parents do growing up? And, uh, you know, what was it about your upbringing that, that made you interested in history? Yeah. So I'm I'm not only a, a second generation academic, I'm a second generation Cornell professor, oh, which wow. is a little wonky indeed. I, I grew up uh, in Ithaca, New York. Um, uh, my dad was a professor of history at Cornell. Uh, my mom was a major gifts officer in the development office, which means unless you had a million dollars in your pocket, she wasn't talking to you. Right. And so I sort of grew up in a very academic, very sort of cloistered world um, of, a, of an Ivy League in a fairly small upstate, upstate city. Um, and I'd always been interested in history as I think both because I think uh, my dad modeled in many ways what a, what a sort of working academic 
looks like. Uh, he published a lot. He taught a lot. Um, and so I could sort of see someone really enjoying and 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 doing their career justice. But I also, uh, at, a, at a sort of ground level, am fascinated by uh, how societies work and have worked. Um, and it always seemed to me that that history was the best way to enter into that. Um, and, and at some points, I'm probably going to make snotty remarks about other disciplines like political science and, and sociology. We, we encourage that on this. Podcast. Yeah, that's excellent. Leave, excellent. Leave I tell my literature. political science colleagues that they're all really historians and they just don't know it. Leave the literature people alone, though. They've been good. <laughs> yeah, they've been good. Yeah. That's <laughs> honor. And so uh, I majored in history uh, as an undergrad and I wanted to go to grad school for uh, to get a PhD uh, and be an academic. And this was the late 90s uh, or this was the early 90s when the predictions of a wave of retirements yeah. was still sort of floating around the academic world. All the senior professors were going to retire and there's going to be this giant set of openings. And so it seemed like uh, a, a plausible direction to go in. But but I thought about what I uh, wanted to work in specifically and, and decided on military history. One, because I think, well, one, embarrassingly, I think it's a boys and toys thing. Um, I always sort of loved guns and weapons and high technology um, and all yeah, that. Yeah, we noticed you got a, a musket with the- I do, I do. The provost of Cornell called me out on that one. I have a, a replica musket in the in the background of my um, uh, my Zoom <laughs> lens. Um, and that's uh, that's the 20th Maine's regimental flag behind me. Um, oh, okay. From cool. Civil War. Yeah. Um, so uh, as I was saying, so, you know, I was sort of that, that, that technology thing, but I, I was always also convinced that war was an incredibly important thing to study and that, you know, it's an activity that humanity spends most of its time doing, unfortunately, and figuring out what was happening and why we were doing it was just incredibly, uh, incredibly important. Um, at some level, I, you know, I understand, I compare it to, being a, a, a doctor of oncology um, in the sense that you're studying something that's kind of awful when you look at it closely, but it's absolutely critical to understand it and figure out what's going on with it. So I went to I went to Duke because they had a good military history program at that point, led by the the great Alex Rowland, um, and yeah. uh, was there with Wayne Lee, who's you who you already mentioned. Is, is Alex not just the sweetest guy? Oh my God, he's right. so, he is the nicest. The only time I've ever seen him slightly testy was when he was chair of the department and all the departmental politics. Well, um, as Brian knows, that'll do it to you. Oh yeah, we've yeah, been exactly. side of Brian that I never knew existed. Kind of cool I'm not the department chair; I'm just the assistant chair. He's assistant. That's enough. Oh my God, <laughs> I, I have you learned the trick of always you always keep moving in the hallway so no yep. one can actually buttonhole you for too yep. long. Yeah, and I and I'll, I I'm really good. Hoping none of my colleagues uh, are listening. Um, if someone is in my office, I say, "Walk with me. I've got a meeting down here." <laughs> and then I just go to some random room. Like, yeah, <laughs> I can have to remember that one. That's awesome. That's spectacular. Spectacular. Duke, uh, Duke was in a really good position at that time. They had, Roland had built the program up. UNC had hired Dick Cohn um, as, a, as a military historian who is, as I think we all know, is, is also spectacular. Right. Yeah. And so the two universities were really starting to build the program together. So I took classes both at, at Duke and at UNC um, from, from Alex and from Dick. And it was really 
it was really quite amazing. Um, the first year I was the only military history grad student, which was a little overwhelming. And then, but then they started to build uh, the cadre up. You know, Wayne was there uh, at Duke um, and and a whole cadre of other folks. And it was really sort of a good uh, a good time to be. Did, did, did Wayne set up your computer for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he did not. He did not. But I used to I used to go by his office in the car building, the history building and look in and he'd have this computer and he'd be playing Civilization, the the online right. role uh, play, yeah. empire building game. Wayne's playing Civilization and he's, you know, he's an ex-army person. He's got a career in archaeology um, and all that stuff. So he's He's sort of this highly uh, entertaining bull in a china shop. No, I always told, said, you know, if, if, you know, Renaissance man, if he just did like watercolor landscapes, he would have the whole package, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I know. I, I always feel vaguely inadequate when I talk about Wayne because he's just got, you know, eight different careers. Going. He's, he does blacksmithing. He right. builds his own Archery. weapons. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Bill, have you ever been one of his shooting days in North Carolina? No, but I'd, I'd love to do that. Oh, just for for those who don't know, he owns a couple acres of land and he has all of these weapons from out throughout history, um, you know, antique guns and replica guns and arch bows and arrows and an atlatl from Assyrian warfare. I know. And he, he takes them and he brings people out to these three acres of land and spends days shooting with them. And it's just the most amazing experience because it's actually having a chance to engage with all of this weaponry that you um, that you talk about and just sort of have that visceral physical sense uh, of what it's like. David, I want to back up for a second. You said yep. your dad was a Cornell professor. What did he, uh, what was his area? He was, he did American civil war, um, but he was actually American political history. Um, so his, his area was uh, the civil war era uh, uh, before and after. Um, and, wrote uh, uh, things on party politics um, and a number of uh, other things. He wrote a book about um, the annexation of Texas, uh, about a biography of Martin Van Buren um, and a whole range uh, of different uh, different things. Uh, and, you know, I, I used to go in and have lunch with him uh, when he was working and I would sit in the back of his office while he was finishing stuff up and he still had the little three by five note cards for all of his notes and he oh, would have wow. just boxes after boxes of these three by five note cards old school he, he it really was and he would sort sort of sort through them um looking for and trying to arrange them in the right order and it was just this sort of it's this sort of amazing memory for me now because it really is as, as bill just said a sort of old school uh experience in terms of how we used to do things yeah so did you like did you grow up like going over and having dinner with isabel hall and and and, and whatnot oh yeah well listen that was the he was part of cornell history's great generation that was michael Kamen, who won a pulitzer prize that was yeah. walter lefebvre who yep. was the, was the oh, dean wow. of american foreign policy dick polenberg who uh, didn't necessarily publish much, but taught a legendary American history course, and uh, and my dad uh, uh, Joel Silby, and they all they all came in in the mid '60s um, and sort of set the agenda for a generation of historians at uh, at Cornell, and so it was just sort of this amazing. So you know, you'd have you're having dinner with Pulitzer Prize winners and 
you know, people who are advising presidents um, and they they never it's it's fascinating they never had the polish that you get down in dc but they always had this sort of gravitas yeah um and it's kind of amazing so after you you know you go to duke um you you settle in on i assume your book on uh the british working class in the first world war was your dissertation yep what because you you know a lot of your pretty much all your stuff after in terms of your books and edited volumes you've been doing american history so you know talk to us a little bit about that going with british british history and then and then making the switch into uh, american topics my my wife claims that it was because i wanted to uh, live in britain and, and go to pubs for a number of years um and i, I still i yeah. still suffer that that fantasy yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, exactly i'm not sure she's wrong so my my real specialty is in the uh the era of total war the way i put it the rise of total war in the late 19th uh, and into the 20th century sort of the end of the civil war to uh, the end of World War II, uh, and I'm and I'm fascinated by this uh, incredibly intense, incredibly violent, incredibly global kind of conflict um, that that we we witnessed uh, in the early part of the 20th century. One of the things that always fascinated me was that, for the most part, the populations of the nations fighting were remarkably willing and eager to fight, to continue fighting, to suffer unbelievable um, casualties and losses, and nonetheless go on and, and support their, their government. And, and we can see that in both world wars. I mean, in World War I, we do talk about the French mutinies and the Russian army collapsing, but for the most part, the soldiers of those, of those national armies um, fought vigorously for four years, despite the most horrendous casualties. And in particular, I was wondering about why working class soldiers would do that. You know, if you if you come from a population within a country that's not treated well, probably can't vote, is sort of structurally trapped in a certain economic level, there's no social mobility, why would you fight so fiercely to protect a state and nation that doesn't treat you all that well? In particular, the the one the reason I settled on Britain was that the British used a voluntary system for the first couple of years of the war. They didn't have the draft. They didn't have conscription. And so it wasn't even just that, that the, these soldiers were willing to cooperate once they were in uniform or submit to conscription. It was they they were willing to leave home and family walk down to the nearest recruiting office and volunteer uh, to fight. And was and, that the period when they had the PALS units? Yep, stuff, yep right? exactly right. Yeah. Well, yeah, Bill, you're exactly right. It's the PALS battalions. Right. Um, it's all of these neighborhoods volunteering together um, and being put into um, units together, which turned out to be catastrophically a bad idea because right. it, when they suffered casualties, it wiped out yeah. entire neighborhoods. And and the POWs are the most obvious example of that. But, they, you know, there were just all across the country, there were all these uh, regiments that were built up out of this wave of uh, volunteerism. So I wanted to find out what was what the men themselves were saying about why they did what they did. Um, if you talk, to, you talk to British military historians, if they're on the right uh, side of the aisle, they'll say, well, oh, yes, it was because they were so patriotic. Uh, sorry about the accent. Yeah. Um, and if it's on the left side of the aisle, they'll say, I won't try to do a, uh, another one. If they on the left side of the aisle, they'll say it's because they were fooled into it. They were propaganda. Yeah. But nobody looks at what the guys actually said. 
Um, and so I went over to Britain and looked at letters and diaries and memoirs and, and listened to interviews with these working class soldiers and, and tr tried to figure out and explain what they, why they were doing what they were doing. Um, and that, that turned into my dissertation and then, and then that turned into the first, the first book. Now, did you, um, I assume you spent a whole lot of time at the Imperial War Museum and then, you know, various collections at universities. What we always tell our students in history, uh, historiography classes is, you know, the working class is left behind far fewer records. So was there, I assume, with, with the ability to write letters as kind of a standardized thing that you didn't have a problem finding sources? Yeah, it was, I, people thought I was going to have trouble finding sources. Um, my advisor, uh, Roland, was, was very worried about it. But you're right. I, I I did actually end up finding quite a lot of stuff. This was this was the first literate uh, working class generation. Universal education had come in in the late 19th century, and so this was the first generation that could read and write. And they did a lot of it. They wrote letters. They wrote diaries. They wrote memoirs. And and you know you mentioned the Imperial War Museum. Um, the British have been very good about collecting as widely as possible um, those kind of those kind of sources. So I spent a good chunk of a year sitting in the, the reading room of the Imperial War Museum, um, working through uh, everything that they had. The, the Imperial War Museum, of course, is in the old Bedlam yeah. insane asylum. Right. Yeah. Um, and the reading room is, is actually the old chapel of the insane asylum. It's right up on the top under the copper dome. Yeah. And so it's this, it's this spectacular sort of physical place, but it also has the, uh, you know, the HVAC capabilities of a, uh, of a bad tent in the middle of a howling <laughs> snowstorm. Um, so I would, you know, I literally in the middle of winter, I'd be have, I'd have my hands over my laptop keyboard. For, so the warmth yeah. would actually, it's like, make... it's like Cratchit. Yeah. Yeah. Like Christmas yeah. Carol. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, the, the archivist would be wearing snowsuits. Um, but it was, it's, it's one of those, it, it always makes me think of why the dissertation is such a foundational experience because that that year that moment of reading the sources for yourself and thinking about what to do with them and just day after day having that engagement right down at the level of the raw information is just so powerfully formative um that it it really remains to this day i think maybe the most important scholarly experience i've had um, you know, you just, there's no one else, but you, I mean, it's, you're the one making yeah. decisions, your advisor's reading stuff, but they're, they're keeping their hands off. So what shifts you over then to the Philippines and, and those topics to toward the American stuff? Yeah. You know, it, it, in some sense, it was, it was part of the larger world that, that, that I'm thinking about with the, with total war. But what I also started getting interested in was the not just the waging of total war but then the reactions to total war so if you're a uh, if you're an enemy of a western power post 1945 the united if you're an enemy of the united states an enemy of britain you just seen them fight this incredibly overwhelmingly industrialized mass war at a level beyond anything you can manage yourself. And so there's there's no way you can fight, for example, the United States uh, on an open battlefield because you're going to get killed. 
uh, as Saddam Hussein discovered in 1991. Yeah. You know, I tell my students, if you want to beat Michael Jordan at a game, don't play him in basketball. <laughs> now, they don't know who Michael Jordan is. So now I have to say LeBron James. But in any case, but so so I got I started getting fascinated with what I'm call, what I call the asymmetric responses to total war the development of guerrilla warfare and uh, and things like that. And we were stuck in Iraq in, in 2005 when I was starting this project and things were going really badly. And so one of the things that puzzled me was that the United States had, had been good at counterinsurgency in, in the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, that, uh, that, was, that was one of our big things. The, the, the wars in the American West were classic counterinsurgency campaigns. We were really good at it. And yet we lost all that knowledge at some point and are now, as we've shown, as we showed in Vietnam, as we showed in Iraq, as we showed in Afghanistan, we don't know what we're doing. We learn the lessons, but then get rid of them as soon as, uh, get forget those lessons as soon as possible. And so I, I wanted to look at something to understand why we were good at it or how we were good at it. And someone pointed to the Philippine-American War as this sort of moment of, of counterinsurgency when the U.S. is stepping out on the global stage and winning a war against an insurrection quite handily and quite quickly in a way that, that would be completely unfamiliar to us now. Um, and that, and so Bill, that's why I sort of jumped in on, on that one. I, you know, I sort of went all the way around the world to metaphorically speaking to do it um, because I wanted to answer that question. You know, what was it like when, when the U S was good at counterinsurgency, what did that right. look like? Right. Real quick, David, I'll take a little, our, our full break, but we wanted to ask you about the, the, the Cornell Washington program that you're mm. part of, because you're actually in Washington, uh, where you've been for, for a while. Can, can you briefly explain like, what is that program and, and what, what, is, what is history in that and what's your specific role in it? Cornell Washington programs, program that Cornell set up about 35 to 40 years ago. And the idea is that we have an outpost, Cornell has an outpost in Washington, D.C., and students come down for the semester uh, or for the summer, and they do internships uh, at all the places that you might imagine in Washington, the White House, Senate offices, uh, State Department, places like that. And at the same time, they also take a regular load of classes. So they're doing their classwork at the same time as they're doing these uh, internships. And the idea is that they have a chance at professional development, at having a chance to engage with their potentially career in politics and policy, but they're doing it in a way that's keeping them moving towards their degree. They're having a chance to take courses that really sort of engage with the political and policy world that they're a part of. And they're generally just having that DC experience um, in a way that is supportive and and still within the safety of of their college of their time in college. You know, I was at Alvernia, uh, the, my previous institution, uh, which is my first place out of uh, grad school, and uh, this was really, I think, an opportunity to work for me in a, work in an area that was. This is going to sound like criticism, but it's not m more than the standard history department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. 
yeah, in, the, sure. in in the sense of in 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 doing something that that had some practical benefits for the students. I you know I I always I think we all struggle with that that question of of parents and students asking what are what are what are we going to do with a history degree? And I I'm never sure that our answers are really convincing. Um, and so this was sort of an opportunity for me to go and do something where I was able to sort of to sort of clearly explain the value of this. Uh, and again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing history because I think, you know, given what happened in in January of 2021 um, with with the insurrection, that that having a strong knowledge of history is absolutely critical to every every citizen. But but this seemed like it combined the practical and the academic in a way that I hadn't really seen before. And so it was a really good opportunity for me. Say, I, don't, I mean, I, don't, I think it's if it is a criticism, it's a valid criticism. And, and, you know, even at a place like Georgia Southern, we've started trying to offer as many internships as possible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we don't have the resources uh, available in a place like D.C., but, you know, just even, you know, giving students something that they can go out and, and say, I have this set of skills. I can show you this product that I was a part of. You know, that's that's increasingly what we've got to we've got to kind of turn our attention to, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's the wave of the future in some sense and that that it's this kind of what my uh, uh, bosses uh, up on campus are calling uh, experiential learning is now I know is now the um, uh, is now really the uh, the wave of the future. And, and I and I think it's the right direction to go. Um, not to lose the the the, the deep, deep academic learning you get uh, in a more traditional sense, but also to give students a chance to really have experiences that they, to a large degree, control themselves, understand themselves, and engage with the with themselves directly. Yeah. Well, it's like it's what we study, right? We we study change and yep. adaptation to that change. Yep. And guess what's happening to us, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you know, it's time to start practicing what we what we preach about all the time. So, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, we absolutely. always joke that, you know, sometimes in our department meetings, it's like, you know, for a group of people that study change, we're probably the most resistant to change <laughs> you can <Yeah>. find. <laughs> yep. But I think it's true of academics in general. We're, we're oh, yeah. Yeah. All C conservative and in, in a lot of the least adventurous investor on Wall Street is uh, is an Ivy League professor of something. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's take our little phone break. So, David, you are a senior editor uh, for the Battlegrounds uh, Military History Series at Cornell University, um, and you guys have been putting out some really good books. Um, I, I read uh, Jay Lockenauer's, uh Dragon Slayer recently. We had him on the pod. It'll be uh, coming out sometime uh, soon. Uh, Ed Westerman's Drunk on Genocide. Um, so really quickly, the series has become important in the field, and uh, just tell us how the series got got started, how you got involved, and, and kind of what you want the series to be. Yeah, we at Modern War Studies at Kansas, we're, we're watching you, man. <laughs> we're, 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 we, got, we got our eyes on you, man. No, we, we are a good complimentary series. So you, yeah, no, no, and and uh, and Kansas is so unbelievably good at military history that I we aspire to be Kansas. Um, so uh, it, it's, and thank you for the kind words. Um, 
About five years ago, uh, a new uh, editor at, at Cornell uh uh, reached out to me, uh, Emily Andrew. Uh, she had done a military history series at a Canadian press and then moved down to Cornell. And she wanted to start up a military history series with, with CUP. Um, and so she sort of reached out and sort of said, what, what would your vision of this uh, kind of series uh, be? And I was uh, I was really excited by the idea because I think you know, one of the ways you can affect the field and the understanding of history is by writing your own stuff. But another way, and I'm in many ways, a more important way is by working with and publishing other people's works. There's so much good history out there um, that it's that it's just an amazing uh, chance to to really create something. And she and I worked together on this. And the idea was that I think for me, that military history was too siloed, too much in its own little corner of both the history profession and then within military history, um, there were little silos uh, as well. So the larger silo is military historians have, have sort of looked with suspicion for years at um, the, the use of race, class, and gender as a category of analysis, um, uh, as the rest of the history profession is doing. That's changed, thankfully, over the last 10 years or so. And I think the rest of the history profession looks a little suspicious at military historians, uh, thinking that we're all out on the battlefield with replica weapons in the background of our Zoom shot. and uh, Or holding shooting days on your three acres outside. Exactly, or, exactly, <laughs> holding shooting days on you. I know, I'm not really, we're not really proving the case, are we? And, and then, but then within military history, and and and, and I think you folks know this, um, is we've sort of siloed our, we've sort of sequestered ourselves off. There's, you know, there's sort of the operational military historians. There's the war and society folks. There's the new military historians, and there's not as much overlap between those as uh, as I as I thought there needed to be. You know, Rob Satino, who's a, who's a great uh, military historian and focuses mostly on the operational side, once wrote a critique about war and society that it studies everything but the war itself, and that's a little mean. But I think there's a, there's an element of truth um, in that one. And so what I said to Cornell and what I said to Emily was, let's do a series where we try to cross, we try to fill those gaps because that's where, that's where the stuff that's getting neglected is. Let's try to, let's try to publish stuff that's um, links war and society uh, to operational stuff, to the larger historical, just the historical field that, that in, in one sense that what I said, talked to her about was connecting the battlefield to the larger world. So we wanted works that went all the way down to the battlefield, but all the way back up to the cultures and societies that created it. And and she loved the idea. Um, and she's she's great, by the way. She's at McGill, not McGill Press now. And uh, so we we put together a prospectus for Cornell, and we we sort of they approved it, and we started looking, you know, sort of looking for stuff. As I said a minute ago, there's just an enormous amount of stuff out there that actually crosses the the lines that I talked about. Um, that is just incredibly, incredibly well done. You mentioned Ed Westerman's Drunk on Genocide. Uh, you know, it's a book about how alcohol affected the Nazis or how the Nazis used alcohol during the Holocaust to sort of motivate and and, uh, and otherwise, um, you know, uh, knock themselves out. 
and and it's that kind of that's sort of the book I I point to when I when I talk about the series because it goes from this larger cultural issue around alcohol to what I would think of as the battlefield, the sort of actual execution of the Holocaust, and connects the two in a way that makes it clear that you can't understand one without understanding the other one. The other one I would mention is Mike Hankins' book on the development of the F-16 fighter pilot, where a fighter, I'm sorry, the F-16 fighter in the U.S. Air Force, where he looks very much at the sort of culture of the fighter pilot within the U.S. Air Force, of chivalry, of knights of the air, and talks about how that affected the design of the F-16 plane. And again, connects that larger cultural thing to something that actually then goes out and fights with it. And so I think I think it's been really heartwarming to see both the 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 stuff that we've got coming in and also the reaction to it because um, I think people have been very comp- very kind uh, in how they've reacted. Uh, to things, um, not to make Bill nervous, but uh, we got lots more good stuff coming out. So, uh, and we do, we do too, buddy. Watch out! We do too. We're, 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 <laughs> All we're right, still... guys, Sep, get you know, separate. Go back to your they, corner. David, do you find, and, and maybe this is just me because of my my innate imposter syndrome, but I, I find it, um, it it's satisfying. And mm-hmm. It's very fascinating and and uh, you know, and, and actually fun to be involved in a series like Modern War Studies or a new mm-hmm. series at Cornell that, but at the same time, I feel kind of a heavy, just kind of a heavy burden of like, you know, we're, you and I, we're, we're, sh- we're shaping the field because mm. the decisions we're making yeah. to publish, right. what to move forward with, right. You know, we're, we're, we're making choices just like, you know, Kara and them at Nebraska and, you know, all, all the, the other series, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of deciding what the field's doing. And I don't mean that sound that, I don't want that to sound arrogant at all. Right. I mean, but it's a responsibility that I know you and I, we take really seriously. Yeah. And, you know, every once in a while, I'm just like, oh my gosh, are we doing the right thing? Is this, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's heavy. I can't imagine the stress that you two feel like, uh, you know, uh, Joyce sent me an email to look at for something. Somebody had sent an email about something they were writing, uh, were thinking about. Kansas. And, you know, I, I, that's what I thought, you know, Joyce is like, what's your opinion on this? And it's like, this is someone's life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, someone's been spending years putting this thing together. Um, And so it, yeah, it is tough. Yes. I, you know, Bill, I'd almost, I'd almost flip that around. um, And the sense of saying that you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a massive, it's a massive responsibility, but I actually find it invigorating because oh, yes. uh, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah my fo- I, my my focus is i or or my sense is that this is this is a chance to really give people who've worked on something for years their moment in the in the sun and and you know chance to sort of really really oh, absolutely is, yeah there's nothing more satisfying than yeah. than than seeing you know the the the, the book from its proposal stage, you know, seeing it all the way through to being published, right? right? Yeah, and the excitement that that the author has, especially first-time authors, but anyone. I, I know I'm I'm totally with you there, but that, I think there's also a difference in our fundamental characters. You're very optimistic and positive. <laughs> well, well, I'm Eeyore. 
you know, well, I'll hey, just... I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll tell you both uh, as someone with no real connection to either press, the thing that both of you are doing and doing well that makes both the, the Kansas series and Cornell series so attractive is it's that price point. You yeah. are producing it's good scholarship, but when you can get a hardcover for less than 40 bucks in most cases, then you're doing something right. It's accessible. Yeah. Um, you know, you walk over to the uh, the tables of of other publishers at, at conferences, and you see a book you want, you pick it up, and it says 140 bucks, and it's just yeah. like, all right, I could never use this in a class. Yeah. Um, so uh, I will be using two of your books in uh, my upcoming uh, graduate readings course on Nazi Germany, David. Um, nice, so, uh, nice. And and you know, the accessibility has a lot to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Part of the part of the agreement that I negotiated with Cornell. Uh, was to keep prices at a reasonable level for exactly the reason you're talking about. That that first book we of mine we talked about um, Taylor and Francis who who were great uh, as as publishers, but they priced it at a hundred dollars, um, and that means yeah. that that you know my family and a couple other people were going to buy it. And so when we talked to Car when I talked to Cornell, I said we got to keep them at a reasonable level. The other thing, and this wasn't something that had occurred to me, was they have really spectacular cover artists. Yeah, right? Oh, Those, same with Kansas. I mean, yeah. they just do an amazing job. Oh yeah. my God, the first, yep. the, the when Ed Westerman's, I, I'll i mention another one, Nicole Eaton's book, Nazi Blood, Soviet Soil. Oh yeah. Uh, right. yeah. Just, the cover just came out and it's just unbelievable. And I really think that pricing helps, as you said, that the cover helps, and just that sort of sense of we want this to be as accessible as as possible. And, and that's exactly been my goal. And university presses have had to rethink how they market things because libraries aren't buying their books like they used to. Yeah. You know, say compared to 30 years ago, yeah. where, you know, the price point wasn't so critical, things like that, they could rely on that market, and now they can't. And, you know, at the end of the day, David, you know, we, we got to sell books right. and they, they got to look good. They got to look attractive and, you know, and be good and be good work. And right. fortunately, you and I are, you know, involved in an area of where there's really broad interest uh, it, already. Yep. And, and we can we can. But I, but I still say it's really humbling, but also, like you said, very invigorating and exciting to be part of, <laughs> of, of whatever role we play in shaping that. I think it's just cool yeah. as shit. I love it. I, I really do. But yeah, you're doing, you guys are doing great work there. You know, uh, Bill, you know, it occurs to me where I do feel that sense of, oh my God, I'm, I'm passing a verdict on someone's years of work is when right. I'm doing anonymous refereeing. Because when, when with press stuff, you have a chance to do something about it. You can say, all right, yeah. you know, uh, we can't publish this right now, but if you do this and this, come back and we'll, you know, we'll take another look. Uh, we very rarely turn something down completely. With anonymous refereeing, where you're just sort of laying the verdict down, I, I just wrote a wrote one uh, sort of fairly negative review of, of a manuscript I've been sent. And I didn't feel good about it for all the reasons you're talking about, which is this is someone's heart and life that they've poured into it. But you also have to be honest about, yeah. about your evaluation, you and, then, and then it's just out of your hands, and that that feels bad in a way that 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 you were sort of alluding to. We ultimately we, we both have to turn things down, and yeah. but but if if it's still good work, it just doesn't fit what you're doing with the series. Yeah. So yeah. you know, try to help them find another home for it because there's yeah. a home for it out there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the other face of battle 
you know, a lot of stuff in there about unconventional wars, guerrilla warfare, you know, one, why, why that sort of thing? And I think I already kind of know where you'd be, be headed with that because I think it fits your, your earlier interest. But, yep. you know, what lessons do you think that book offers, especially for, you know, military professionals? Yeah. So I think um, the other face of battle, it was Wayne, Wayne Lee's idea. Um, right. And, but it was something that echoed with me and I think uh, with David Preston and Anthony Carlson um, was the sense that the U.S. military not only was not good at fighting counterinsurgencies, but but refused to learn the lessons in an almost deliberate fashion. Um, you know, if you look at post-Vietnam, they they sort of decided we're not doing that again. We're going to focus on the the big war in in eastern in Western Europe, and we don't we don't feel like thinking about it. Um, and we always and, do this, right? We're we're coming yep. out of Afghanistan and all yep. that, and we're like, yep. no, 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 it's China, it's yep. Russia, right? Yep, yeah, completely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. We did we did the same thing with Iran, and so the right. idea was that to look. At did he say war. Iran? Well, that was a Freudian. Story. Oh, sorry. Whoa, oh, oh Freudian yeah, slip. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I can't was, tell you why I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, coming out of Iraq. Um, so the the and the other part of this is when you do American military history, you know the wars everybody talks about. It's right. the Revolution, the Civil War, World War II, and Vietnam. Um, those are the wars that that are the official, um, you know, tier one wars in in the American military narrative, uh, the story we tell ourselves uh, about it. And sometimes World War One gets a look in, or the Spanish-American War, or the Mexican-American War, but but those are the big wars, and they're almost all entirely conventional, high-intensity um, uh, wars. And so we wanted to look at wars that were not part of that official narrative, and that had lessons about the way that the U.S. military encountered different kinds of fighting but also different cultures fighting. Because the other story we tell ourselves is about wars we fight against other Western or Westernized nations, Germany, Japan, Britain, the Confederacy. And yet, if you look at most of our American wars, they are fought against what we called uh, intercultural, they're intercultural wars, they're different cultures, ones that we don't understand as well. The Vietnamese, the Filipinos, the Native Americans in the West. And so we tried to write a book that sort of worked through what that experience was like at the ground level um, for American soldiers, and then sort of point to the to the idea that for current serving professional soldiers, that you have to understand what your enemy is doing, even if you don't. And you have to understand, your, and more importantly, you have to understand your enemy, um, because it's too easy when you don't understand an enemy's culture to dismiss what they're doing as savage warfare or unfair in 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 some way. And you know, sort of wrote this sort of narrative through on that, and and it came out with Oxford in 2021. And the really sort of shattering thing, it got it got very good reception from a lot of the army officers we knew, but the, the really sort of shattering thing is if you look post-Afghanistan uh, evacuation, as, as Bill has already pointed out, is the, the army's pivoting right back to 
big war. Uh, yeah, the they military. do a complete 180. I mean, exactly it's just, right. It's, it's all about China now. And yeah. the Marines are getting rid of all their tanks so they can scoot around the Pacific and fire missiles at the Chinese. And right. Uh, and and the, the Navy's doing the same thing. So it's exactly what we what we were trying to warn against, which is uh, we understand you don't like fighting this kind of war but you nonetheless are going to have to do it and you have to do it well. And to do that, you have to understand the people you're fighting. Yeah, One of the things I point. took away from that, that book, David, was that you, you guys really kind of emphasized that the way we perceive the other mm -hmm. you know, through our own lens is just so myopic. And yep. so we, want, we, we will for, do whatever we can to force them into what our pre preconceived notion of them is. Yep. And as a consequence, you know, we, we fail to understand how they work. We fail to understand the Thucydian, you know, their fear, honor, and interest. Yeah. We, we want to see it through our lens and we just completely miss, miss the boat. And I just don't know why we're so bad at it. <laughs> to, to highlight that uh, is, is when you look at how American soldiers and officers thought about the Filipinos, it was very much filtered through the racial lens mm -hmm. that American culture at home had, that, that, that these were non-whites, they were inferior. And they connected that inferiority to the Filipinos' incompetence at conventional warfare. The Filipinos were not good at fighting conventionally on the battlefield. But they, but they, Americans saw this as an essential part of Filipino character. They were not good soldiers. Um, and so when the Filipinos flipped to switch to an insurgency model, the U.S. took uh, longer to react than it should have because they knew the Filipinos weren't good soldiers for racial reasons. And so they couldn't believe that they were actually doing something that was effective. Um, and that's a, that goes exactly to your point, which is that when you bring these kind of cultural preconceptions about an other, it's so difficult to look past them and figure out what and understand what they're actually doing, and so easy to get locked into. Because, because, like in that case, you know, it it fit our preconceived notions when they shifted over to to insurgency. Because, see, look, they're sneaky. They're yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Even that fit our our our, our idea. And, yep. And, like and you said, that's why it took yep. so long to do. Uh, yeah. Got into brilliantly in your book. That was awesome. The other the other part of that, I think, is that culturally we America likes technology, likes big solutions, like large, uh, like mass organizations. And yeah, we, we want you to get out in the open so we can blow shit up. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's right. that's true at a civilian level too. I mean, everybody's yeah. walking around with a yeah. supercomputer in their pocket, you know, right. their iPhone. And yep. we love giant sort of large sports like the NFL and the NBA and and things like that. So this is it's not even that it's the military that's creating this culture. This is this is American culture. That's a good point. Translated yeah. down to, to to warfare. So it's I we criticize I I criticize the US military, but but they're they're not doing anything better or worse than than what American culture and American society is doing on a larger level. That's yeah. one of the things that stuck with me with Ian Toll's you know trilogy on the Pacific War and World War II. Mm. That shift in 19, late 43 into 44, where we reached the point of basically corporate warfare. Yeah. 
that that's yeah. what we're doing. It's yeah. just mass, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's yeah. organized and it's efficient. Well, Brian, I think I think uh, David has done done a wonderful job for us today. I, th- I think yeah. uh, he is he has earned uh, the the privilege to participate in in rapid fire. I think so. I think so. <laughs> Even though he's got a single shot muzzle loader behind. Oh God! Him. Oh, now I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know the drill, man. We're going to ask you ten questions. I'll, Brian will ask a couple. Uh, I'll ask a couple, and uh, we will comment and judge and see how you do. <laughs> All right. We're going to start off with the best work of history that you've recently read. Uh, best work of history I've recently read um, is something called uh, "Dying to Learn" by a guy named Michael Hunziger. Yeah, um, which is about uh, the lessons learned on the Western Front uh, during World War One, and looks really closely at all at the Germans, Americans, and British, and and how they figured out what was going on. That one is on my list. I've heard that that other people have recommended that to me as well. Yeah. Okay. It's good. All right. Um, recommend a book uh, not related to uh, to history. So, what are you reading, fiction wise, or or just for you know general interest? Uh, I'm currently reading Stephen King's uh, new book, Fairy Tale, um, and I uh, Stephen King is one of the great literary tragedies of my life because I love his <laughs> prose and his style, but I hate horror with a passion. I can't really? stand horror. I, I just don't like it. And so I've never been able to read his stuff despite liking it so much. Um, and this one is not a horror uh, novel. It's uh, It's his take on a fantasy novel, and it's really quite good. Okay, yeah, I am. A, I'm a huge Stephen King fan as well, and have in the past even suggested that perhaps he is the uh, the greatest American writer ever. <laughs> I I think there's an argument for that. I yeah. I've heard people make that argument. That's interesting, man. It sounds like I mean, are you doing some sort of penance or something? I mean, is that <laughs> I just it, Bill. It's two things. It's one. It's too much like work. Um, you know, <laughs> right. about people getting getting slaughtered is too much like work. And I just don't like the the sort of gruesome nature of it. It just, it yeah. Just I'm not a fan either. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. The, the movies as well. I'm just not. Yeah, no, I know. Oh, I can't do. Yeah. You should you should check yeah. out the Dahmer uh, show on Netflix. So you'll enjoy that one. <laughs> oh, I, I think I'll avoid that. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, David. Uh, this is my favorite question that Brian came up with. You get to listen to one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? Uh, the police. Um, oh, that yes. was quick. He did That's not a, hesitate. Yeah. I did not. I did not. Oh, and it, I wanted to go deep old school. So I started listening to their stuff in the late seventies um, when when Sting was still uh, yeah. uh, as as pompous as he has is now. Um, listen to all their stuff, and I just think they're they're an amazing band. Um, okay. I, I can't listen to them an enormous amount now because I've heard so much that it's it's just overkill. But but definitely the police. All right. Wow, that's you know that's uh, I will I will throw throw my wife Jennifer under the bus a little bit. That's one of, that's one of the bands or one of the people when it shows up on XM Radio, she immediately turns it. Oh <laughs> wow! Oh. Now mine mine is Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Peter Gabriel pops up, you know, on first wave, and psh, I'm hitting the Boom. button. You're yeah, right. Your wife is those, right. Your wife is dead to me. Just yeah, just, I know. Just, I'll tell. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. What are you, what are you binge watching? Uh, right now, uh, we, the family is binge watching two, three separate shows. Um, my wife and daughter and I watch together. We're watching only murders in the building, 
um, which is a, yeah. not only a spectacular mystery series, but a great series about New York City, um, which I love dearly. It's Steve um, Martin and Martin Short, right? Yep. And uh, yeah. Selena Gomez. Gomez and yeah. and all the support. Did you see their, their show they did together? Uh, their co- their comedy deal they did? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, you should check it out. I think it's all on right. maybe Netflix, but it's it's the two of them. And they actually filmed it here at the Peace Center and down the road in Greenville, South Carolina. Oh, wow. I'll, yeah, I'll check it out. But they, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Um, and, and then the, the other two are um, The Sandman, which is the adaptation of Neil Gaiman's mm-hmm. graphic yeah. novels, um, which is which is pretty solid. Uh, and then the final one is uh, Bosch, uh, which is a uh, murder mystery series uh, set in Los Angeles with a uh, not not too stereotyped, but the grizzled uh, police detective who's yeah. at odds with with everybody, yeah. his yeah. department, his fellow police officers, but most most of all the criminals. Yeah, I, I like Bosch a lot, and uh, Sandman's also good. I've, well, that's I've a good formula. You can't you can't yeah. you don't go wrong with that formula often. I think. Nope. Yeah, I like Bosch because they make it clear why he's a cop who has that amazing house. It's like he, you know, he, <laughs> he, they, his, his stories were used for movies, and that's where he got his. Uh, I know, I love that's where he got his money. Yeah, I love um, breaking the fourth wall. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, all right, your coolest encounter with a celebrity or politician in D.C. My coolest encounter with a celebrity or politician uh, in D.C. Actually, uh, I have to so. This is a little bit odd, but a a friend of mine from years and years ago turned up from Britain, turned up in D.C. in the embassy and uh, was essentially, uh, without naming names, uh, working in, was there as a British intelligence officer. And so he uh, was there for sort of three years through the pandemic. um, And uh, we had lots of good conversations about things. Um, he didn't give anything away or or anything, um, but it was uh, it was quite fascinating to sort of hear a lot of the background things that were going on um, in Britain. And now that I've told you that, uh, British agents will be showing up to uh, kill you. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you're, you're hear those, those click clicks on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, you are on death row. What's your final meal? My final meal is, uh, if if it's breakfast, it's the full English breakfast, uh, sausages, oh, wow. fried eggs, baked beans, bacon, uh, fried bread. Uh, yeah, it's going to make a pudding. mess. That's going to make a mess. What, what a choice. <laughs> no, no. Um, if, uh, oh my God, just awesome. If it's uh, if it's dinner time, I think, I think uh, Carolina barbecue. Oh, uh, well, we know where uh, that's headed. Yeah. All right. David With hush puppies and... Uh, you know, uh, coleslaw and sw- and the sweetest sweet tea you can uh, you can get. Oh, wow. all right, good deal. Uh, all right, what's your uh, what English football club do you follow? Um, I I don't follow one specifically, but when I was in England, I went to see a game at Millwall, which was then a first division club yeah. and is is legendary for having the most violent fans around uh, in in any of the British clubs and I I not knowing any better I ended up sitting in the fans or standing in the fan section and they had no idea what the heck to do with me here's this you know right. dumb american who's wandered into the middle of an incipient riot and and <laughs> has no idea what he's doing and so they they took to me and they actually explained some of their tactics among other things 
one of the things they would do was they would wear baseball caps and they would tape razor blades on the underside, old fashioned yeah. razor blades on the underside of the brim so that the security wouldn't catch them. And then when they started fighting the other fans, they would take the hat off and whip them with the brim and cut them open. And so they're telling me these stories and I'm sort of like, Oh, how lovely. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's a peaky, great. that's a peaky blinders move. Yeah. Peaky blinders. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, okay. Dulles or BWI? No, did he disappear? David, let's wait on him. Yeah. Cornell needs to give this man a pay raise so that he can get some good oh, Wi Fi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I swear to God, there, you guys are jinxing it somehow. Uh, I never have trouble with this. Uh, well, actually, that was the uh, the British Secret Service. Yes, it's already started. Rain. It's already started. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's right. We're cutting, we're cutting them up. Uh, All right. Dulles or BWI? BWI. Dallas is a giant pain. Yeah. Okay. That was quick okay. too. Yeah. Uh, all right. More likely to be real. Maybe you've got some insight from your uh, secret service friend. More likely to be real. Bigfoot or UFOs? Uh, UFOs, I think, because I can't imagine there aren't alien uh, worlds out there in the universe just on a statistical level. And some of them have, have, have got to come visit us. Although God knows, I noticed since the advent of the video smartphone, all of those sightings we used to have in the 70s and 80s have right, just yeah. completely disappeared. Right. Um, yeah. So I think I'm undercutting my own thing, but UFOs. See, I like all the right. idea of, of a Bigfoot. I, it, on reservation dogs, you know, they, they, there's like a Bigfoot out there yeah. somewhere that uh -huh. every once in a while comes creeping through. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Okay, uh, you've already given away your love of Carolina barbecue, so may I assume that you are uh, you go with pork uh, in the battle of brisket versus pork? I do, I do. Okay. I uh, my my first genuine introduction to barbecue was was coming down to Duke in uh, uh, in 1990, um, and uh, I've never lost my love for uh, for that style of barbecue. All right. Are you able to uh, to find it in Maryland? And if so, uh, do you want to give a shout out to a place around you in Maryland? Uh, D.C.'s got a lot of good uh, barbecue uh, places. Nothing. No, no one of the no one restaurant stands out for me, unfortunately. But but D.C.'s a good barbecue town. Um, surprisingly good. You know, you think of it as the federal government, but it's actually yeah. a, a good southern city. A lot of barbecue here. Yeah, that this was, was fun. That, that was David, great. I really enjoyed this. This is this yeah, is a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, sorry about the technical stuff. It's uh, no, I, I have no idea what the hell is going on. You're fine. It's all right. Um, it'll it'll be fine. We'll we'll we'll, we'll work through it. It'll be, it'll be a problem. <laughs> Mine will end up being ten minutes long because that's uh, that's all you all the audio. <laughs> you can, uh, you can no, not at all, man. Gentlemen. David, Thanks. Much appreciated. Yep. Yeah. What Thank you're you, doing David. is awesome. I really, I really, it's an incredibly valuable thing to be doing, and I'm. I'm really glad that I got a chance to participate. Yeah, yeah thank no, you. thanks it was for awesome. doing it. We appreciate yep. it very much. Take care, David. Take care. Bye.
Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not BJ Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.